Well, church, it is so good to be with you guys today. Thank you so much for coming to the Austin Stone, fighting the traffic. I know that the uh, 1115 service here is crazy, and so we're glad you did that. You made it. Um, I want to invite you, if you will, to open up your Bibles, if you brought one, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 20. Um, if you didn't, if you don't have a Bible, that's great. We've got the scriptures behind me on the screen. <clears throat> but before we jump in today, I want to tell you kind of what we do as a church that we have ever since the first Sunday of our church, almost 15 years ago, we preach verse by verse through different books of the Bible. And right now we're in uh, the book of First Peter, and we just so happen to be on a uh, verse today about the resurrection. We didn't plan it that way, just kind of by the grace of God as we've gone through the verses we hit. Last week was actually on the cross, verse 20, and today in verse 21, we're on the resurrection, which is pretty cool. And so I want to jump into verse 20. I'll read it together. That's what Hallem, Pastor Hallem preached on last week. Um, And I'll read it to you. First Peter chapter one, verse 20. It says, he was foreknown, talking about Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now, the extremely short version of that, what Peter is doing is he's saying, look, that when God created us, that in his omniscience, he knew that we would sin and fall short of his glory. God knew that. Didn't take him by surprise. And so from the beginning, God has planned to come to this earth and die on a cross, shed his blood to pay the penalty for our sin, that whoever trusts into him, his death on the cross and his resurrection can be forgiven of their sins and completely reconciled back into a relationship with God. So last week was about the cross. Now what we're gonna see in verse 21 today is Peter kind of transitions and he starts talking about the resurrection. He talks about kind of the significance and the impact that the resurrection has for us today. So let's read 20 again and then we'll read 21. Peter says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In verse 21, he says, who through him are believers in God and who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Now, it's important for you to understand today who Peter is writing to and why he's writing this letter to these people. He's writing this letter to a group of Christians in the first century that were going through an amazing amount of persecution. And not only were they being persecuted for their faith, they were living in a culture that didn't like Christianity, thought they were crazy, but these are a group of people that are going through all these different various trials. And he writes them this letter to remind them that in the midst of those trials and their lives that they're going through, that they need to be sure and put their faith and they need to put their hope, not in anything else, but in the Lord. And what he does in that sentence is he gives three things, three reasons, if you will, on why God should be the object of their faith and their hope. He says this, he says that, he says, through him, you're a believer. That's the first thing he says. Second thing, he says, God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the second reason. You need to put your faith and hope in God. And then he says this, he says, God glorified Jesus, which is pretty significant, and I'll talk about it later. But he says, those are the three reasons why you need to put your faith and hope in the Lord. Now, before I kind of explain those three things, and I will in just a minute. I want to talk about why um, I think this is a critical subject for us to discuss, and I want to address two things before I just dive into the text. One is this. I want to explain what the word faith and hope means, because faith and hope are words that are kind of church words, and they're words that get used a lot in our culture. They become ambiguous to us. A lot of times that we don't really uh, place a lot of meaning to those words, and so I want you to understand what he's saying. When he says, hey, you need to put your faith in God, you need to put your hope in God. All right, the word faith is a word that means trust. You place your trust in something. And so when I walked up those steps right here and I stood on the stage, I am literally 
<laughs> excuse me, I'm literally putting faith in this 15-year-old stage that it's going to hold up my weight. It's also important to understand that the word faith means trust for right now. And so faith means you are trusting in something and you're doing it right now in the context of your life. Now that's a very different word than the word hope. The word hope comes from the Greek word elpis, E-L-P-I-S. It's a different word and it, um, while faith means to trust in something right now, hope means to trust in something in the future. And the biblical word for hope, the one you see all the time in the scripture, whenever you see the word hope, it has a different meaning than kind of what we use it as in America. In America, when we say the word hope, what we're talking about is having, um, we're, we're having wishful thoughts towards something, or we're having an optimistic outlook towards something. And so earlier when, we were, when Aaron was singing, if I was, when I was down in the front row, I could have accurately said, hey, I hope when I walk up on the stage, it's going to hold my weight. I, I'm looking forward to something with optimism. But that's not really what Peter's saying when he says you need to put your hope in God. The biblical word for hope, it's not based on optimism. It's not based on wishful thinking. Biblical hope is based on the 100% assurance of God's promises. And so biblical hope means, hey, look, if God says something, sometime in the future, it is going to happen. It always comes true. And so Peter, what he's doing is in this verse, he's making an argument to these people using these three reasons. He's saying, look, you need to put your faith and your trust right now in your life. And then you need to put your hope, your 100% assurance for your future, not in any other person or any other thing, but in the Lord. Okay, so that's the first thing. Now you know what faith means and hope means. That's what what he's saying. But I also want to talk about why this is kind of, I think, important for us to talk about as a church and in the 21st century, and here's the reason. Why, why is the subject that seems kind of obvious that we need to put our faith and hope in God? Why should we even be studying it? And here's the answer. <clears throat> because every single person in this room today, every single person that's alive right now, actually, on earth or that ever lived, puts their faith and puts their hope into something. We don't think of ourselves in those terms, but it's entirely true of everybody who's ever lived. The question is not if you put your faith and hope in something. The question is who or what do you put your faith and hope in for today and for your future? And and, and the reason that happens is because of this, is because every one of us has these internal needs and has these internal desires inside of us. Maybe they're spoken, maybe they're not, but they're inside of us and they drive us. The reason we do the things we do, the reason we make the decisions we make, the, the things that we do in this life almost always are driven and motivated by these internal needs and desires. And so what we have a really bad habit of doing, even sometimes as believers, is to take our faith for today and our hope for tomorrow and we place it into something or some person that absolutely, to, fit, to meet those needs, that absolutely does not have the ability to actually meet those needs. Um, a couple of examples in my life I was thinking about <clears throat> when I was in high school. I was probably a junior when I started realizing this, but in, in high school, I was from Athens, Texas, which is a little backwoods town in East Texas. And I had a deep desire for freedom. I wanted to leave Athens, Texas. I wanted to leave my parents. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to go wherever I wanted to go. And so I longed, I had an internal desire for freedom. And so what I was doing is I was putting my, in a very real way, I was putting my faith and my hope into college. 
I thought, man, if I can just get away from mom and dad, if I can just get away from this little stupid town, then I'm gonna go to college and then I'm gonna be happy and then I'm gonna be content. And then this longing I have for freedom that I think's gonna be the end all be all in my life, that's gonna get satisfied. One of the things I realized really quickly when I woke up one day and I was a college student <clears throat> is I got my freedom. I got my freedom in this, this thing that I had put my faith and I had put my hope in, I realized uh, pretty quickly that it was not everything I thought it should have been. Freedom was great, but it was not everything I thought it should have been. I realized very quickly freedom meant that mom did not wash my clothes anymore, right? I realized pretty quickly that freedom meant poverty, right? Freedom meant I'm looking in my couch cushions for quarters to go to Taco Bell to survive. And so this object that I had put my faith and put my hope in to meet these internal needs I have, I realized that that object was not worthy of putting my faith and hope in. I did the same thing when I was single. I remember being in college and wishing I had a girlfriend. You know, I remember thinking how cool it would be if, if I got married one day that, you know, I thought I'm tired of being single. I'm, I'm tired of being alone. I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna live my life with somebody. I thought if I can just get married, if I can just have that person that will be my wife, then, then, then all my deepest longings and desires will immediately be satisfied. Well, I woke, I woke up one day and, and I was married. And, um, and don't get me wrong, I mean, marriage is incredible. I, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but, but I realized pretty quickly that, and you're gonna, you're gonna hear a really hearty amen from the married people in the room, but marriage represents, um, or rather presents its own set of challenges, amen? There you go. And um, marriage means brand new responsibilities that you didn't even know existed, right? Marriage means the um, hardcore sanctification of your soul every day of your life, right? Marriage has all these things that when you're single and you're looking at and you're putting your faith and your hope into it, you don't realize is coming. And so pretty quickly, every marriage, married person that's ever lived realizes marriage is awesome, but it's definitely not worthy of me. It's not worthy of an object to be the object of my faith and my hope. And even, even your wife and even your husband that you will love more than any person on the planet, even them you'll realize they'll let you down. Which is kind of the point that I'm saying next that I realized through all of this, and I found this to be true over and over and over again, that there is not a single human being in your life that will not eventually disappoint you. There's not a single person in your life that if you hang out with them long enough and you dig down deep enough into their lives and you see really who they are will not eventually disappoint you. Your husband, I promise you, he's gonna, your future husband, your husband, all the wives already know this, your future husband, he's going to disappoint you. Your wife is gonna disappoint you. Your mother and your father, all of us have figured that out. Our mother and our father, they're going to let you down. Your brother, your sister, your best friend, your, your boss, your heroes in the faith. They're all human. They're all going to let you down. Every single person in your life eventually will disappoint you. And here's the other thing I've noticed is that everything that we want and desire and pursue, it, everything will eventually disappoint you. I mean, think about this. If fame and money and, and really cool work and perfect bodies were the secret to meeting the deepest needs of our soul, then the people of Hollywood would be the happiest people on the planet. And all you gotta do is look at the divorce rate, suicide rate in that part of the world, you realize that's, that's not the case. 
every person, everything that you place your hope and faith into in this life eventually dis- will disappoint you. And I thought about it. I thought, okay, because I figured out the, the marriage thing. I figured out the, the college thing. I figured out the job thing. That doesn't really satisfy the longings of my heart. I was like, is there anything else in my life that I, I Matt Carter, I'm still looking at and think, man, if I just had that, then I'd be happy. And I found some, I figured it out. I'm gonna tell you, and I'm gonna confess this to you. And some of y'all are gonna leave the church after this, but that's okay. Um, I travel a lot. And so I was thinking what I really still kind of think would be awesome is a private jet. Anybody with me on that? And I want to be clear, I'm not going to get one. (laughs) I'm not going to start a GoFundMe for y'all to give me a jet. I'm just saying that would be really cool. I really do in my mind, in my heart, think, man, if I had one of those, life would be good. You know what I'm talking about? Because I am, uh, I, I measured one time, the seats in American Airlines are 17 and a half inches wide. My shoulders are 24 and a half inches wide. And so if you have somebody like me sitting next to me, what that means is that we are laying on top of each other, which produces in me rage. Anybody with me on that? So I'm gonna make a promise to you. I'm never gonna have an affair in my life. I'm not going out of ministry like that. I'm just not gonna do it. But me getting hauled off an airplane at some point in time is a real possibility. And I'm just warning you guys for that. But anyway, so there's these things in our lives that we, these things that we look at and we think, man, that'd be awesome. But here's the thing, there's a whole book of the Bible written on that subject alone. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. You had this guy Solomon, most powerful, richest man in the whole world. He had access to anything he wanted. And at the end of his life, he came to the conclusion, he said, there is nothing I have found, no thing I have found in this world that meets those needs. You get them and you're like, eh. He uses the word vanity, they're vanity. But then there's a claim of the scripture in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 11. Don't turn there, but I just want to read it to you. And this is the claim of the Bible about the Lord. In Romans 10, 11, it says this, for the scripture says that whoever believes in him, that word believe means faith, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. One translation says that those who put their faith in God will never be disappointed. And so the claim of the Bible is there is actually one object that you can put your faith for right now and your assurance for the future into and it will never let you down and that is the Lord. And so what he does in 21, he gives us three reasons why God is an object worthy of our faith and hope. I'm gonna fly through these and we're gonna be done. Let's read verse 21. Here's the first reason he says you put your faith and hope in God alone. First thing he says is through him, Through him, we are believers in God. He starts off and he says um, in verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. So the first reason Peter gives is why you should put your faith for the day and your assurance for the future in God. He says, because of him, you are believer. Because of him, you are believer. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say put all your faith and hope in God because he's the reason you believe. Well, I think Peter is probably making reference to an interaction he had with Jesus back in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus, hanging out with his 12 disciples, he stopped and he asked him a question. He says, guys, who do people say that I am? Jesus was popular at the time. There was all these thousands of people following him around. And he asked asked the disciples, who who are people saying that I am? And some of the disciples talked and said, responded and said, well, some people think you're Elijah, who's come back. And they said, some people think you're John the Baptist that's come back. 
And Jesus then stopped and he looked at his disciples and he said, okay, well, who do you say that I am? That's great that all these other people are saying that about me. Who do you say that I am? And it was Peter, the, the, the guy whose letter we're reading right now. It was Peter who responded and he said, Jesus, I'll read it, Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. Or rather, no, Peter said, you are the Christ. That's what he did, he responded. Peter said, you're the Christ. Jesus, you're the son of the living God. In other words, you got it right. He said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the one that the Old Testament was talking about. You're the one we've all been looking for. You're him. And not only are you the Messiah, but you're the son of God. That means he's saying you're God in the flesh. You're the savior and you're the Lord. He got the right answer. And so Jesus responds in Matthew 16, 17, and Jesus answered. Watch what he says. He says, blessed are you. You're blessed. Now, why would he say you're blessed? Because you got the right answer. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's Peter's name. It's funny, but I won't get into it. Watch next. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Peter gives the right answer. Who do people say that I am? Or who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus looks back at him and said, look, the reason that you got the right answer, the reason that you believe in me is not because of your intellect. Jesus said, the reason you believe in me is not because you did all the math and came up with the right answer. Jesus looked at Peter and he said, the reason you believe in me is not because some person walked up to you and gave a compelling argument and then you believed in me. Jesus looks at Peter and said, the reason you believe that I am the Christ and the son of the living God is because God the Father opened your heart and revealed that to you. And so what Peter is saying to us here in verse 21, he's like, look, the reason that as you live your life and you're going through all this stuff, the reason you need to actively take your faith and you need to actively take your hope for the future and not place it in other stuff, but you need to put it in God is for this reason. Because if God began this thing of belief in you, then he's gonna be the one that's gonna make sure it stays in you until the very end. And that's what Peter's saying. I mean, excuse me, Paul. Paul is saying in first, or Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, for I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, look, if you're a believer, if you're a genuine believer, you need to understand something. There was a point in time in history where God looked down and his eyes were on you individually. And he opens your heart to believe the truth of the gospel. And since he was the one that did that, that started that in you, he's gonna walk beside you and hold you and make you follow through all the way to the end. So the reason we can put our faith for today and our hope for tomorrow in God is because he's the one that started it and he's the one that's gonna complete it. Here's a second one. Look at verse 21 again. Peter says, through, who, through him, excuse me, we are believers in God who raised him from the dead. So the second reason Peter gives as to why we need to put our faith for right now and our assurance for the future, not in something or some person, but in God, because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now I want you to know, I wanna read this one more time and I want you to pay careful attention to the wording of the resurrection and what Peter is saying about the resurrection, one more time. Who through him are believers in God who raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead. So theological question for you, based on what we just read, who raised who from the dead? Did Jesus raise himself from the grave or did God the Father raise him from the grave? It's, it's critical. 
You see, Jesus was not mostly dead. He wasn't sort of dead. He was completely dead. And so what the Bible teaches us over and over and over again is that God, through only a power that God has, as Jesus was completely dead in the grave, paid the penalty for our sin, breathed life into him, and through the power of the Father, raised Jesus from the grave, okay? And so now, in light of that, that we know that God raised Christ from the grave, what does that mean for you and me? Well, there are a lot of implications that the resurrection has on our lives. There are a lot of reasons that because Jesus rose from the grave that we should put our faith and hope in God, but there's one particular one that Paul talks about that has a lot of insight into why we should put our faith and hope in God. It's in Philippians 3, 9. Let me read this to you. Paul says, I wanna be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All he says right there is when it's all said and done and I'm standing before the Lord one day, I don't wanna have a righteousness based on what I did uh, right or wrong. He's like, I wanna be found in Jesus. I wanna have a righteousness that came from Jesus on the cross, not what I did. And then verse 10, watch this. He says, I wanna know him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. It's a fascinating thing for a human being to say. Paul said, there's two things I want in my life. I wanna know Jesus. That word know, it means to experience. Doesn't mean to know cognitively, it means to know experientially. He's like, I want to experientially know the person of Jesus. But then he says something fascinating. He says the same thing, I want to know the power of the resurrection. Why in the world would a human being say that? He says, I want to personally experience and I want to personally have access to the power that raised a dead guy from the grave. Now, why would Paul say he wants to actually in his life experience the power of the resurrection? The reason he said that is because for a believer, it's entirely possible for you to experience the power of the resurrection in your life. <clears throat> now I'll tell you folks, I believe that with all my heart. And the reason I believe it with all my heart is because I've seen it in my life. There are some things that have happened in my life over the last 43 years that I'm telling you, I simply cannot explain apart from there being a power that I have access to that is not from me. I know me. I know me a lot better than you know me. I know my heart, I know my head, I know my thoughts, I know my failures, and I'm telling you, there are things in my life that I've seen that have no explanation apart that there's a God and he gave me the power to do it. One of them's preaching. I don't know if you know this, I've shared this a couple years ago or something, but I'm actually painfully introverted. Some of y'all met me, and you're like, I know that. And... Um, I'm also scared to death to speak publicly. Scared to death. When I, uh, true story, when I was in college, my sophomore year, I signed up for a speech communications class and what the professor asked us to do on the first day, he said, tomorrow, I want you to prepare this, I want you to stand up in front of the class, the little lectern thing, and said, I want you to give your name, your major, and your hometown, and then you can sit down. And I said, no, and I dropped the class that afternoon. True story. Two years later, I'm a junior. I'm a youth pastor at this time. And it's a long story, but I was a youth pastor and my pastor 
was at a church of about 75 people. And my pastor asked if I would preach the Easter service on Easter Sunday morning, the sunrise service. He was gonna preach the big one. He gave me the little one. And so for some crazy reason, I said yes, and I was scared out of my mind. I was scared out of my mind. I told my fiance, Jennifer, who is my wife now, and I told her, and she goes, oh. And she stayed up all night praying for me because she was convinced I was gonna bomb. And so was I. And so I stayed up all night preparing. And I'll never forget this. This is one of my favorite memories of my life. I walked up into the pulpit, scared out of my mind. And when I entered the pulpit and I said, open up your Bible to whatever, I don't remember what I was preaching on, but I said, open your Bible. There was a peace that came over me in that moment that I don't, I don't know where it came from. And then as I opened my mouth and I started preaching, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm five or six, seven, eight, ten sentences into this thing and, and I look down and people are actually listening to me. And about five, 10, 20 minutes until I look down, people are crying at the end of it. People trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And in, in that 20 something minutes, I experienced a power that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt did not come from me. I'd never in any other arena in my life ever experienced it. My, my fiance, Jennifer, the whole time I was preaching, her eyes were like saucers, they were this wide. And I walked off the stage. I thought maybe she'd say, great job, good sermon. I'm glad people got saved. They're going to heaven now. Congratulations. She didn't. She goes, the guy on that stage is not the guy I know. She recognized it too. Um, I've seen it in my marriage. I've shared this before too, but Jennifer, uh, Jennifer and I have been married almost 21 years. And about year seven, eight, nine, we hit a pretty rough spot. And there was a while there, we didn't know if we were going to make it. I mean, it was rough. And... There was one particular night, it was bad. We kind of hit kind of a crossroads, man. It was just a tough one. And she went out with some of our friends and I just stayed home and I was wrecked out. She was wrecked out. I was crying. I didn't know what I was gonna do. And I remember I was just at the end of my rope and I prayed a prayer. I said, Lord, just in desperation, I said, God, I need you to change me. I need you to change me. Didn't pray that God would change my wife. I just said, God, if you're real, I need you to change me. And I'm telling you folks, as I stand here, that in that moment, he changed me. I have not been perfect since then. I've made many mistakes, but I'm gonna tell you something. I am a different man than I was when I prayed that prayer. I have, um, I've seen God give me the ability that I never had in my whole life to tame my tongue. I saw God give me the ability to respond to people in kindness even when I feel like I didn't or shouldn't, didn't need to. I saw him change almost instantaneously. My ability to kind of love and serve my wife first regardless of whether she was loving and serving me. I saw him, in short, I saw him change our marriage. He changed our marriage. And I'm telling you, I cannot attribute that to her and I cannot attribute that to me. The only explanation is God in his grace gave us access to a power that we did not have inside of us. And so what Peter's saying here is like, look, the reason, folks, that you don't need to be putting your faith and hope and self-help stuff is because the self-help stuff at the end of the day doesn't have a ton of power, but there is a God in heaven and he raised Christ from the grave and you have access to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a power that doesn't come from you. 
So if you're gonna put your faith into something, if you're gonna put your hope into something, you put it in the Lord. Last thing. In verse 21, he says, through him we are believers in God. Number one. Number two, God who raised him from the dead. And then the last thing he says here, he says, and gave him glory. And gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so the last reason Peter gives us as to why we put our faith and hope in the Lord is not only that God raised Jesus from the grave, but that God gave him glory. Now, what does that mean? That not only did he raise Christ from the grave, but he gave him glory. Now, look, I could preach an entire sermon on this, but here in a nutshell is what it means. What it means is this, is that what, what Jesus, at the end of the day, was not the first person to be raised from the dead. But what this means, that God raised him from the dead and then gave him glory, is that although Jesus was not the first person to be risen from the grave, Jesus was the first person to rise from the grave and then never, ever die again and is still alive today. That's what that means. I mean, think about it. Lazarus in the Bible, he, the Lord raised him from the grave. He died. He was in the cave. He was in the tomb for a couple of days. Jesus walked up, said, Lazarus, come forth. Dude came to life and walked out of the grave. But what happened to Lazarus? He eventually got old, he got sick, and he died again. There was a widow, um, this, this widow who had a son, and he died. It was all the widow had, and Jesus felt compassion on, on the widow, and so he, he brought the son back to life. The guy was risen from his grave. But what happened to the widow's son? He eventually got old again. He got old and got sick again and died And so what Peter is saying is, look, God raised Jesus from the dead and he glorified him, which means that Jesus was the very first person in all of history to die, come back to life. And right now, as we speak on this morning, all this time later is alive and on his throne today. That's what that means. And church, there are some pretty profound implications of the fact that not only Jesus rose from the grave, but he's been glorified, that he's alive right now. The implications of that means this, is that Jesus, through his resurrection and glorification, Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered death. Death has been our greatest enemy from the beginning. Death has been the one enemy that always kind of had the last word until Jesus Christ was risen from the grave and is glorified because that means that death has lost, not just the battle, but death has lost the war. It's been conquered through Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul, that's why Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter, I think, 15, 55, that kind of hits him. He called Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. That means he's gonna be the first one that, that rises from the grave and never dies again. We're gonna be the other ones. And that kind of hit him that Jesus kicked this whole thing off and defeated, conquered death forever. And it gets all over him. He starts talking smack to death in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? Sting's gone. Oh, death, where is your victory? Because your victory was swallowed up. Your victory was swallowed up in the resurrection of Christ. And so death now has been swallowed up in the victory of Jesus. And so what Peter's saying to us is, look, I've got a really good reason, no matter what you're going through, to put your faith 
for today and your assurance and hope for tomorrow in Jesus and nothing else. Because if he died and rose from the grave and is still alive today, there is gonna come a day where you're gonna die, but because of Christ, you're gonna rise again and then you'll never die ever, ever, ever again. That's what that means. You know, and I was, um, I'll end with this story. I, there was something that happened years ago that, that made me realize that I had kind of lost my awe in the reality that Jesus right now is alive. That we, we say that all the time, uh, we gotta believe that Jesus rose from the grave and then we believe it, but we kind of lose the passion and the awe of the fact that that's the coolest thing in history. <laughs> It was about 10 years ago when my son, Samuel, he was, he's 12 now. He was two, three then. And we brought him to an Easter pageant. He was just kind of starting to talk and getting to where he could kind of run sentences together. And something happened on that day that made me realize I kind of lost the, the, the awe and the passion of the resurrection. I want to show just a little quick picture of Sammy when he was that age. You'll know how cute he was. Um, that's Sammy. When <laughs> I think he's actually like, blowing a little kiss to his mama in that picture. So this is about how old he was. You can bring that down. It's about, about how old he was when this story happened. But we were good parents, and we'd been telling him, look, Easter is not about Easter bunnies. Easter's not about the candy, because my man was into candy back in the day. And we're like, that's not what it's about. Jesus rose from the grave. That's what Easter's about. And so he was in. He's like, I get it. I, I'm all about Jesus is alive, right? That was his thing. He got it. So we took him to this Easter pageant. And what we didn't realize is they weren't just talking about Jesus rising from the grave, but they actually depicted Jesus dying. They showed Jesus on the cross. We hadn't fully clued him into that yet. And so he's sitting on, I think he's sitting on my lap at that point, and, 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 and Jesus is on the cross, and, and they're beating him, and he's got this concerned look on his face. And they're beating Jesus and then they hang him on the cross and he's, he's kind of shifting in his seat. And then they brought Jesus off the cross and Jesus was dead. And little Sammy, little guy looks at me and goes, my Jesus died. And I was like, yeah, buddy, he, he died. He died, yeah, he, he died on the cross. And they looked at me, he said a little bit louder. He said, my Jesus died? I was like, yeah, yeah, but he had to. Like he, he died, to his, shed his blood to pay for our sins. And then he got a little bit louder. He said, my Jesus died? And he's starting to get loud and people are starting to turn around. So I handed him my wife, woman, get him out of here, right? And so she picks him up and she's walking him out the door. And as he's going out the door, he keeps saying that over and over again. My Jesus gone, my Jesus gone, my Jesus die. And she brought him out the door and, and she was trying to reconcile him, trying to tell him in his little three-year-old mind, yeah, Jesus, he had to die. Yes, he died, but it's a really good thing. We, he had to die to pay for our sins, but Sammy, he's gonna come back to life. And she couldn't reconcile him. And finally, he calmed down and, and, and to the point where she felt like she could bring him back in. And so he's sniffling and he's still kind of crying and she brings him back in. Right about the time that, that the music sounded and the, and the smoke started coming out of the grave and the, and the, and the stone starts rolling away and this dude comes out in a white, white coat thing. He's Jesus and the angels are singing and everybody's going crazy. And Sammy looks at my wife and says, my Jesus alive? And she said, yes, yes, you're Jesus, he's alive, I told you. 
I told you he was coming, coming back and he just gets pumped up. He says, my Jesus alive. And he looks at Jennifer and he's like, let's go tell dad. And so she's like, all right, let's tell daddy. And so he comes back, she puts him in my lap. And he goes, my Jesus alive. And I said, I know, I told you, you should have listened to me. And he just starts kind of getting louder. He says, my Jesus alive. And then he stands up to announce it to everybody. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs, my Jesus alive. And then there was like, yeah, it was really cool. Cool parent moment. I'm like, I'm such a good parent. This kid gets it. But the cool thing was, is, is I had this kind of instinct that just, I'll be quiet because he, he's screaming, my Jesus alive. And everybody in about 20 rows, a big sanctuary, everybody in about 20 rows is just staring at us. And then I started looking at some of the faces of the people that were staring at us. And there were so many people that had kind of heard the whole thing happen. And they were just weeping. Because I think it hit them. Same thing it hit me is that we kind of lost our childlike awe of the fact that we have a Lord and Savior that is not in his grave anymore. (laughs) That he's alive. He's alive. And that's all Peter's saying. He's like, look, you're Jesus. He is alive. You put your faith right now. You put your hope for the future. You you put it into Jesus and Jesus alone, nothing else, because he is alive. And if he's really alive, then what in the world would be worthy of putting your faith and hope into? And so today I want to do this. I want us to pray. And so let's bow our heads right now. And as our heads are bowed, I, I just wanna, I wanna speak just for a second to anybody in the room that's not a believer. Maybe somebody dragged you to church today and maybe it's your first time, maybe it's been a long time since you've been back and, and there's never actually been a time in your life where you have put your faith and put your hope into the person of Jesus. I wanna just give you the opportunity to do that right now the best way you know how. Say, Lord, I I realize that all this other stuff in my life, it it hasn't satisfied. And so God, I wanna turn to you. Would you forgive me of my sin? I wanna believe in you and what you've done on the cross and the resurrection. And you may be saying, well, Matt, I thought you said that I couldn't believe unless God reveals it to me. Well, this, this is what I want you to hear. The fact that you're here today is a really good sign that God's pursuing your heart. The fact that you're even aware right now that, that the stuff of the world doesn't meet this need in you, that you don't even know where it comes from, that's a really good sign that God is revealing to you that he's the Messiah, that he's the son of the living God. And so in the best way you know how, just trust into him today. And then for the believers on this Easter Sunday morning, I, I just wonder if you're kind of like me, if there's still these things in your life you're kind of you're still going after. Because you think that there's joy there or happiness there if you just get to this place. Or, and just remember that there's one person in the world and in the universe that will never disappoint you, and it's, it's the Lord, that's it. And just tell him that. 
Father, I just want to tell you that I'm, I'm sorry and I ask for your forgiveness, Lord, for just kind of the times that I have forgotten you and not believed that you are really the only object worthy of my faith and hope. And Lord, I thank you for just reminding my heart of the futility of that. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to do the work and the folks in this room that maybe you've never heard this message before, that they would find the joy and the peace and the happiness and the contentment that is only found in one person and one place, and that is you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. We thank you that you're alive, that I'm praying right now to a living, risen Christ. We praise you. We love you. It is our honor now to worship you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together.